0: America is going online. Let's do our part. Now we can read about current events, sports, politics. I do that already. It's called a newspaper. Hi, I'm Rachel Hampton.
1: I'm Jamila Lemieux, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it. Slate's podcast about internet culture.
2: And yes, it's true. Today I'm being joined by none other than Jamila Lemieux. Jamila, hello. I'm so
1: excited you can be on the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here
2: is currently the host of Slate's parenting podcast, Mom and Dad are Fighting. She's also one of the columnists for our parenting advice column, Karen Feeding. But if you're not a parent, you've also definitely encountered her byline and publications from Vanity Fair to Ebony to Essence to The Cut and so many others. So to get started off, there are a few questions I ask pretty much every single guest host on this show. Um, Listeners will be knowing exactly what to expect, which is my favorite question in the world. Do you think Jesus Christ, as described in the Bible, was canonically hot?
1: (laughs) So I probably have less Bible experience than, like, any Black person you've ever met. Um, (laughs) I was raised completely outside of the church, and so I've not spent a lot of time engaging with the book. Um, But from what I have read and seen, I would imagine that Jesus, as he's written in the Bible, was very hot. Definitely one of the beautiful people, I would assume.
2: Okay. I feel like you're the first person in a while who's, like come down hard on he's definitely hot
1: because we're supposed to admire him You know, and I just think that I mean, I I don't want to disrespect anyone's religion, but I do think we do that all
2: the time. (laughs) I know.
1: I know. This is a a tremendous act of storytelling, you know, (laughs) and it was meant to be a compelling story and a story that people wanted to hold on to and a character that people wanted to hold on to. And so it's hard for me to imagine that he would be kind of plain looking, you know,
2: (laughs) Um, And so, I mean, that concludes the Bible section of this podcast. Um, The next question actually is relevant to the show and isn't just my personal question I ask everybody, which is, what is your first Internet memory?
1: So my first memory of the Internet involves those disks, the... Free AOL hours that way back when, um, when the internet was something that you paid for, not an unlimited access to it, but hours at a time. And we did not have a lot of money. And so I remember my mother and I going through a number of those free AOL trial discs um, and using up all our free however many hours they gave you until we signed up for Juno. So we had Juno internet. Juno was like D list internet. It wasn't AOL. It wasn't America. I mean, it wasn't um, oh gosh, what's the uh, there was another big one. Um, but it wasn't those. And you had a Juno email address. So they put you on blast, you know, kind of like Metro PCS. People know you got <laughs> Juno. Um, and that's what we had. And I loved it. And I was very grateful for it.
2: I love it. I feel like the process of being on the internet used to require so many other steps than just like opening Any computer or laptop or television?
1: Yeah, no one else could be on the phone in the house unless you were wealthy and had two lines, which we did (laughs) not, you know, so this was a production. Um, One computer in most households, one device, so one person using the internet at a time, so it was either me or mom. And it was a production, I can still hear the sound. I actually watched an episode of that 90s show the other day and they show the grandparents, uh, Kitty and Red, who were the parents on the original show that are now grandparents. And it shows them getting their first computer and signing on to the internet and there's that sound. Oh, okay, the internet is just two demons yelling at each other. That's actually pretty accurate. If you heard it today, it would take you back to 1998, you know, and it's like 15 seconds of cutting on and then you're waiting for this thing to confirm like this little gratifying sound like you're Mm -hmm. here, you've made it onto the internet.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I feel like it made us appreciate being on the internet so much more than right now where we're like, ugh, the internet. Before, when you actually had to do something to get on, it was like, this is... This is an experience. This is an experience worth waiting for.
1: Absolutely. And a, and a treat. Exactly.
2: And now it is... I don't know if anyone would call it a treat.
1: <laughs> no, I would not call the internet a treat in 2023. <laughs> that is
2: actually kind of a perfect place to start for today's episode, which is all about you, Jamila. Today is another installment in our Internet Diary series, which as... Everyone knows at this point it's just an excuse for me to talk to some of the coolest people on the internet about how they use it. After a short break, I'll be back to talk all about Jamila's internet history and something we somehow haven't talked about before on this show, which is how to navigate parenthood and the internet. And I'm back with Jamila Lemieux. Before we get into the parenthood of it all, I just want to dig into your personal experience on the internet. You were one of the writers that made me realize that I could have a career as like a journalist and a writer and a critic, specifically as a black woman, where I didn't have to pretend to kind of be some like neutral conduit through which current events flowed. So I obviously have some questions about how the internet has influenced your career. But first, what was the first platform that became, like, a regular part of your life? Like, the one that you visited every day?
1: I well, the first one would have to be Black Planet. And this is when I was in high school and... I would get on there, try to talk to older guys. I'm so lucky that none of them were local or ever really took a strong interest in me because I definitely was using Black Planet to talk to guys that, you know, were 20 or 21 (laughs) when I was 16. Mm -hmm. My screen name was Goddess Almighty 16. Um, (laughs) That was supposed to be my graffiti name, too, but I never learned how to use graffiti. So it was only my (laughs) Internet name and maybe my email address, too. And uh, I really dug having these conversations with other people. You know, people were talking about a lot of the things that we're talking about on the Internet today um, through their message boards. I have very vague memories of it, but, um, yeah, it it was intriguing to me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Black Planet, whenever I hear about it, I'm like, oh. I wish I could have used it. It seems like so much fun.
1: It was fun. It was fun. Did you get to use MySpace?
2: I did. That was my first platform,
1: they were very similar i would say okay uh black planet and asian avenue and mihente which were all owned by the same company i forget the name of the company but they were the precursors to myspace in a lot of ways i think they don't quite get the credit that they deserve you know i mean they really don't there's a lot of talk about how black people have over-indexed on twitter you know but i think that it's important to communicate that there's a history of that, you know, it dates back to mm. Black Planet. It includes MySpace for sure.
2: Yeah, definitely. I feel like so much of the appeal of how platforms are used are usually like the beginning of that appeal is located in like marginalized communities and how they're using these platforms. Mm-hmm. So what would you say was the platform that you feel like has been the most beneficial for your career as a writer?
1: It it has to be Twitter, you know. I want to cite MySpace because I started with MySpace. Um, I, I started my blogging career hosting a blog on both MySpace and Blogger, and I um I was posting the same content to both. And MySpace was really important to me, and it's where I first connected with a number of folks who you know became part of my writing experience like Damon Young, a Very Smart Brothers, and Kashawn Thompson, who created um Black Girls Are Magic. You know, and there was just this really vibrant community of black writers and not all people who would have identified as writers. A lot of us, including myself, were not trained. You know, I didn't go to school for journalism. I had an interest in writing. I started a blog, you know, I connected with other people who were blogging and we were able to find an audience there. But Twitter really took it to the next level. I have to say, Twitter introduced me at the very at the beginning of my career to writers and editors, many of whom I had admired, you know, people I'd grown up reading like Kierna Mayo, Michaela Angela Davis, um, Teray, Dream Hampton, Joan Morgan. Um, and I was able to be in community with them and be in community with them in a space where I had some leverage because I was an early adopter to Twitter. So I built an audience I knew how to use it, you know, like my tweets got a lot of traction. And so folks I really admired, you know, were introduced to me in that way. And I got a lot of opportunities as a result of it.
2: Do you think that you would have gotten those same opportunities if you had started on Twitter, like in 2023?
1: No, not at all. I'm barely on Twitter in 2023, you know, like I I think my time with Twitter has essentially come to it's rightful conclusion I think Um, but no I I, I was at the right place at the right time it was a golden moment you know a lot of people were able to build platforms for themselves who were not traditionally trained journalists Um, and I don't know that we'll see anything like that again for Twitter um, considering all that's happened in the past year I, I, I think that time is come and gone
2: Yeah. Yeah, that seems about right. Something that you mentioned that a lot of, I think, people that I really kind of look up to mention as well about early Twitter and earlier platforms is how they found and built community on them. And I'm wondering if you think that ability is still like available on the social media platforms that we use, or if it was kind of just something that was just part of that early social media era. That's
1: something I'm still grappling with myself, you know, because social media was once this rich source of, you know, not just professional opportunity, but community for me. And I don't have that anymore, you know, and I'm not sure how to access that. And I think it does exist in ways on TikTok and in ways on Instagram, but I personally am not, proficient in using those platforms in the way that I once was with Twitter. And so I feel a little lost on the internet in 2023 and I'm trying to figure out where do I fit? You know, where does my voice go? how does this work for me anymore? You know, do I have to figure out TikTok and start posting short form videos? You know, I never really got big into posting visual content. So, you know, though I would do pictures here and there, you know, um, and I did used to post content about my daughter, I never got in the habit of saying, okay, I've got a hot take on something. Now I'm going to give you my face and my voice. And that's so much part of the recipe now. You know, a lot of the people, I think of Kimberly Foster from For Harriet, who's been so successful at creating video blogs, you know, talking about these same things that she was writing about. And I just never crossed over into that. And it's one of my biggest regrets. I mean, I didn't necessarily want my face to be the star of what I was doing, you know, but now I'm, I'm curious you know like what is the rest of my internet life look like and it's a you know concern for me personally and professionally
2: yeah yeah that's really fair i think that's something that's not really talked about in terms of like new platforms coming up i think so many people are like ugh People just don't want to learn how to use a new platform or like it's mostly just about learning the tools of TikTok or like be real. But it's also like a loss of community in a huge way or like a loss of the life that we built on the Internet when these new platforms come up and they're not necessarily as accessible or as easy to use.
1: And I think part of what made Twitter so special is that you could belong to multiple communities at one time and you could address them all at one time. So there were people who I was talking to primarily about motherhood and people I was talking to primarily about feminism and people who were mostly interested in things I'd had to say about Black Lives Matter, you know, and sometimes they overlapped and sometimes they didn't, you know, and there were people who I was interested in following who were talking about you know, different topics, and they were all in the same place, you know, whereas it seems on other other platforms, there are more of these silos, you know, so it's parenting TikTok and conspiracy theory TikTok, as opposed to, you know, just being this kind of multifaceted person with a lot of interests.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's almost... I kind of think of it as the brandification of the internet in a way where before there was, you could be everything. Like I think of Tumblr as a perfect platform Mm -hmm. for this, where you could truly have so many varied things on your dashboard. But on TikTok, it's like, how, what part of TikTok am I going to put you in? Like, are you in niche TikTok? Are you in makeup TikTok? Right. Are you on this? Are you cooking TikTok? And that's actually what we're going to get into after a short break. We're going to be getting into Jamila's specific niche, which is the parenting internet, a topic that has somehow not really come up on this show that often. So if you want to
0: hear about it, stick around. Families have a lot going on.
2: Hi y'all! If you love our podcasts, then please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. When you subscribe to Slate Plus, you get no ads on any Slate podcast, including your favorite one, in case you missed it, aka this show. You'll also be supporting the show. Icymi would not be possible without the support of Slate Plus subscribers. You will also get bonus segments or episodes on shows like the one that Jamila hosts, Mom and Dad are Fighting, and also Soburn, Amicus, Big Mood, Little Mood, The Waves. You'll also get unlimited reading on the Slate website, which means you get access to every single article and every single advice column from Jamila without ever hitting the paywall. Just visit Slate.com slash ICYMI Plus to sign up. That is Slate.com slash ICYMI Plus. And we're back. So Jamila, you've built, you know, a pretty big audience as somebody who like writes and speaks a lot about parenting. And so I'm curious about what your life online was like before you had your daughter and if your internet habits changed once you became a parent.
1: You know, I was an extremely online person prior to having my daughter and for most of her life I was an extremely online person. I think the biggest change is what I needed from the internet when I became a mother. Um, I'm a single mother, and I've been a single mother since my child was born, uh, a co-parenting mother since my child was born. So she's always had her father, but we did not have each other. And in the absence of somebody who... I could really talk to and share with about new motherhood and all these exciting things my daughter was doing, I turned to the internet and it was very good to me. You know, I used to joke that the internet was my other co-parent, you know, (laughs) I posted a lot of pictures and video and anecdotes and I gave my daughter a hashtag and people were really there for me when I was a new mother throughout my daughter's you know, this kind of go- went on until around kindergarten. Um, and I'm so grateful for the community that I had surrounding me at that time because I was so vulnerable and isolated. You know, I was the first out of my friend circle to have children. I had my daughter at 28, which is not that young, but like by today's standards, I felt like a teen mom in a way, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so I really needed support an affirmation. And I was very fortunate to get that from the internet once upon a time. <laughs> That's actually
2: per- like perfectly segues into my next question, which is, I feel like as a non-parent, when I hear about par- the parenting internet, it's usually some kind of drama around like sleep training or something. And so I'm curious as whether well you feel like the internet has made parenting easier or harder, both for yourself and just like in general as somebody who like deals with a lot of questions and gives advice about parenting.
1: I mean, I definitely have to say in those early days, it made things easier for me. You know, when I had questions, when I felt doubt, I could go and I could access affirmation and people that were going to tell me I was doing okay, you know, and who seemed to care about me and my daughter. Um, I've largely stayed away from the parenting internet, Um, even though I've been doing care and feeding and mom and dad are fighting since like... 2018 now, which is crazy. Um, but like, I I never got into the mommy blogs. I always felt like a lot of that space was very white, very upper middle class, very married, you know. And I also didn't want to commiserate with other single moms. You know, like I didn't want to... I, I felt like going to seek them out would have been like wallowing in a sense. And I do sometimes wish that I had done that differently and that I had more... Um, intentionally built community with other single moms online or found spaces where people were talking about single motherhood. But I mean, it just never seemed like there were many of them. You know, it, it seemed like the mothering experience was oftentimes, here's my husband, here's our family, you know, here's what we do. And, you know, that was tough for me. I mean, like even hosting mom and dad or fighting sometimes is rough for me. You know, like my co-hosts, throughout the entire time I've done the show, have always been married, you know, happily married, uh, multiple children. So they're just living such a different life than I am. And it's hard, you know, to avoid comparing myself or feeling inadequate or just not being able to relate when they're talking about, you know, partnership or doing things together. But I think, you know, I think parenting in a lot of ways, just in general, has become easier because of the internet, just because of the level of access to information that you have. You know, I remember my daughter having hiccups when she was a few days old and being able to Google that, you know, and it it freaked me out very bad, but like I was able to Google it right away and find out that it's okay and safe for babies to have hiccups, you know, (laughs) and Mm um. Perhaps 20 years prior, I could have turned to a book if I had the book in the house at the moment. You know what I mean? Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I do, you know, there's also a lot of, for people that get involved in the parenting trends and things like that, I know that it can add a layer of stress and just the potential to compare yourself to other people, which I guess I have experienced, you know, comparing myself to particularly married parents.
2: You mentioned parenting trends. What are the parenting trends? I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not familiar.
1: I don't know too many of them because I like stay so far away from this stuff because it's also kind of boring to me. But I know that one of them has been gentle parenting, uh, which I find out which I find interesting and relatable. You know, Um, there's a woman I follow on Twitter who goes by Supernova Mama and she's a gentle parenting expert and she has neurodivergent children and is neurodivergent herself. There's also just been a trend of talking about neurodivergence, you know, which is a word that I wasn't familiar with until a few years ago, and I am neurodivergent myself. Um, And just addressing, you know, the unique needs of kids that don't always come, you know, sometimes come with a diagnosis, sometimes don't, but just realizing, you know, how your child um, reacts to certain stimuli, how they function in groups, and paying particular attention to that.
2: For our audience who haven't heard of this, what exactly is gentle parenting?
1: Um, I think it's parenting with the intention of showering your child with kindness and affirmation as opposed to constant correction. You know, so much of parenting as we talk about it can be very punitive, you know. Very focused on you're wrong. You have to do this the right way. You know, here's where you're falling short. And gentle parenting seems like a way. And I'm not the expert, so it could be wrong. But it seems like a way of taking a more loving approach to the way you care for your children.
2: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that kind of uh, comports with what I've seen of it. It's a lot of like when kids have meltdowns or tantrums, it's like, we're not going to yell. Like, we're going to be like, your feelings are valid. Like, it makes sense that you're overstimulated right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, to me, it feels like an attempt at treating your children like people, you know, which is something I've longed for, you know, in, in terms of a lot of the conversations around parenting. And a lot of the conversations that people have around Black parenting, and particularly Black mothers, you know, people... Um, Just through social media over the years, I've heard people say so many things about how they were mothered that really kind of, you know, disturbed me, you know, and just this idea of having this fear of your mother, you know, that like all she had to do was give me that look and I knew she was going to whoop my ass and, You know, as somebody who does not take that approach, you know, I don't want my child to fear me. I've never wanted her to fear me, you know, and the few times, you know, like the times I have raised my voice and tried to be fearsome, I realize this is really ineffective. You know, like (laughs) this does not create love. This does not create trust. This doesn't create an inclination to abide by my rules. This just upsets this person. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I feel like that's one of the more recent developments at least on my side of the internet is people kind of reckoning with their childhood. Um, and maybe it's just the age bracket that I'm in, but I feel like I see a, more recently like videos of like small like black girls specifically getting their hair braided mm-hmm. and they're like crying cuz it yeah. can be painful. Even as an adult, I'm tender-headed and I'm Me like too. I understand. And people in the comments are they like why are you getting this hair <laughs> braided so young? Or like, if I had done that, my mama would have whooped me. And I'm just like, same, but also maybe that shouldn't be the truth. Maybe that shouldn't be how that worked. <laughs>
1: Yeah. You know, I think it's difficult for most people to question the way they were parented, you know, unless there's some very glaring signs of abuse or trauma, you know, but a a lot of us were traumatized and were abused by parents growing up. You know, the idea that you see a little girl crying and getting her hair done and think I would have gotten in trouble for that is really sad
2: yeah it is and it's like I mean it's hard to hold in your head if if you have a good relationship with your parents like I still love this person but also as a child maybe this wasn't the best way to have gone about this mm-hmm mm-hmm So you mentioned that, you know, you found this community as you were raising your daughter and that you have this hashtag for her. And I'm curious if you went into parenting knowing, okay, this is how much I'm going to share about my daughter online. Or is it much more like a on the fly learning experience?
1: Oh, I went into parenting on the fly. Like I was so not prepared. I just it happened. And I was like, okay, we're doing this, you know, so I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what her online life would look like. You know, I mean, there are things I think about now, like the fact that I've used her entire name online, um, you know, I wonder would I do that again because she's at the age now she's almost 10 so she googles herself and she looks things up you know and she's really into you know she likes that she used to have this social media life and she's like you know why don't you post me like that anymore and now that she's older and she's in you know we live in LA we used to live in Brooklyn where we had community and new people and now we're in a city where we're kind of isolated and don't know a lot of folks you know but I do still come across people who know me from the internet, you know? And so I am more private about what I reveal about her now. You know what I mean? Like in a few years, she'll be hanging out with friends and stuff by herself. Like I hate the idea of somebody rolling up her in, her in the mall and, you know, saying that they know her because they've seen things that I posted. Um, so, you know, it was good. We had a good run while it lasted, And then again, I don't know. Sometimes I think maybe the two of us should start a podcast together, you know, and do the internet together, you know, I don't know. But for now, I feel less inclined to share. And I also just don't have that community like I used to, you know what I mean? So it's like I could share something on Twitter, but it wouldn't really resonate. You know, most of the people that I used to talk to on there are not there anymore. And so even though I still have a large audience, it's, um, it's not what it once was.
2: You mentioned doing the internet together. And so I'm wondering how, as you think about where you fit into the internet, how do you think about like where your daughter fits in the internet within her own like separate internet experience? Like, how do you figure out what should be like in your daughter's internet diet?
1: It's difficult. I, I feel like I've already failed because I've allowed her to have a TikTok and to engage with that. And I wish that I could pull that back and start over, and, you know, and just say, not yet. Let's do this a little bit later. Um, I know our friends are doing these things too, and they all have phones, you know, and my daughter's really good at TikTok. Um, you know, she's not super active on there, but the ones that she makes, she can do all the dances. She can stage a video, you know, she's really smart and funny. Um, so I hope that she's able to find community for herself on there, you know what I mean, in a way when it's time. Um, and I have talked to her about being a savvy internet user and how important it is not to base your self-esteem on what's going on on the internet, you know, and to realize that this is largely a facade, um, and that there are a lot of people that are there that intend to do harm.
2: Yeah. You said that you wish you could kind of take that decision back. Why?
1: I just feel like it was a little early, you know, like she's almost 10. I wish that maybe I'd waited until she was closer to 12. Um, It was during the pandemic and I was kind of desperate. I mean, it's still the pandemic, everybody, but it was at the height of the pandemic. You know, we were trapped in the house and I was kind of like... At my wit's end, so I allowed her to get a phone just because I was struggling to work and function, you know, while also minding her. And so, um, you know, that increased her device time and I don't allow her to have like unrestricted like she doesn't have tons and tons of device time, but she has more than I wish that she did. And I just, you know, I see her being really pressed about it already ready and really into it in a way that I wish that she wasn't.
2: What's it like giving advice to parents on the internet? Um, especially because I think giving parenting advice IRL is maybe one of the most contentious things (laughs) you can do.
1: Um, it is, it's interesting. I have stopped reading the comments, uh, quite some time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I do think some of this is grounded in race, that when people disagree with me on the Internet, they question my intelligence. You know, Mm -hmm. it's the first thing Mm -hmm. they do is my capacity to give advice, my intellect, you know, like as opposed to just simply being able to disagree with me. You know, and it's hard to imagine a white guy getting the same feedback that I get. So that's part, you know, that is part of it. You know, another part of it is just wishing that I could help everyone and sometimes coming across letters that are just like, I do not know what to tell you to do, you know, and I try not to stretch too far. Like if I don't know, if it doesn't. You know, if I if I don't feel clear on the answer, I try not to wade into it because the last thing I want to do is give someone some half ass advice and not know what I'm talking about. So I try to stay, you know, I can't say just in my lane because I do provide advice to people who have children that are older than me or younger than mine or you know who may be married. But I I, I try to stay within my my bandwidth, you know, for what makes sense to me, what I where I feel like I understand.
2: Yeah. Yeah. What's one of the most memorable letters you've had to answer for the column or questions that you've gotten on mom or dad are fighting?
1: So the most memorable letter that I've gotten at care and feeding was from the white adoptive parent of a black teenage boy who was selling inward passes. Oh, I remember reading this one. (laughs) Yeah, this was pretty crazy. This kid was selling white kids the privilege of using the N-word at school. And the parent was at a complete loss, you know, because they were also trying to grapple with... The fact that the child was using the word at all, you know, and what, how are they supposed to regulate that? Could they regulate that? And now the fact that they thought themselves capable of giving white kids the privilege of using it too. How'd you answer it? I don't remember. And I always say we, you know, we did a a live last week for advice week, um, some of the slate advice columnists and one of the other columnists mentioned, like, I'm always so afraid of being asked, like, how would I answer a question? Because I might give you a different answer on a different day. (laughs) Um, You know, so I don't remember exactly how I answered it. But I'm sure I said something to them about making sure that this child has some actual black people in their life and that that was really important, you know, and that they were going to also themselves have to come to terms with the fact that their child may have a relationship to this word that they can't understand or agree with. You know, they may want to use the word and you know, in a strange way, the N-word does belong to Black people, but that they absolutely should not be giving white kids the right to say it. And so it sounds like they maybe needed to grapple with the complicated history of the word in ways that they hadn't yet.
2: Yeah, yeah. I just, I remember seeing that letter and just thinking, I, like, had. Have- off to Jamila for answering this because I just would have been like, Bro, what?
1: <laughs> it was a lot. It was a lot. It was
2: a lot. Uh, speaking of advice, our audience, which I did not anticipate when we started the show, but our audience includes a lot of parents and also teachers who listen to the show to keep up, I guess, with what their kids are talking about or encountering online. And I was wondering if you have any advice for them.
1: Just that you need to stay in conversation with your kids about what they're doing online. You know, and I know that can be a little bit more difficult for teachers because usually the phones are supposed to be away in class. But if you are, you know, walking around the lunchroom or the hallways, like, chat these kids up. I'm sure most teachers have a kid or two that they're closer to or someone they feel a little bit more comfortable, you know, talking to, like ask them to talk to you about some of the trends that are going on. You know, if you're a teacher and if you're a parent, like you need to be all up in that phone. The phone is not a solo endeavor. It is something that we, at any moment, is the two of us together. So I'm reading your messages. I'm looking at your feed. I want to see who you're following. I'm going to ask questions about who you're following and who these people are and how you know them and what you think of them. Um, Just that you really need to engage. Like you can't let your kids have the internet to themselves. You have to be a part of their online life.
2: Yeah, that makes given I remember yeah, given my my teenagerhood on on the internet. I'm sure my parents had no idea what I was doing, which is probably not for the best.
1: Not not at all.
2: (laughs) Well on that note, I hope my parents aren't listening right now because I don't want to talk about that. (laughs) But thank you so much for coming on this show, Jamila.
1: This was so fun. Thank you for having me.
2: All right, that is the show. We'll be back in your feed on Saturday, so please subscribe. It is the best way to never miss an episode, to never miss an Internet Diary. Please leave a rating and review in Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. Tell your kids about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod, which is also where you can DM us your questions and suggestions for who else should do an Internet Diary. And you can also always drop us a note at ICYMI at Slate.com.
1: ICYMI is produced by Daniel Schrader and Rachel Hampton, with a special thanks to Sierra Spragley Ricks. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of Audio. See you online.
2: Or not. With Lucky landslots, you can get lucky
1: just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to Has anyone seen the Bride and Groom?